she was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm Sarah Gorski, and I'm here again with my guest, Colin A. Borden. Hi, Colin. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Great to be back. It's great to have you back. We loved your episode last week. I have a question before we get started, in case our audience didn't hear your episode last week. Colin, if you had to choose a singular favorite broad, who would you choose? Oh, boy. They don't have to be from this podcast. They can be from your own history knowledge or your own life even. Well, one broad uh, that I think is an incredible human is uh, Ruby Bridges. Yes. I didn't feel appropriate in bringing her last week because I think her story could be told better by uh, somebody else. But those pictures of that that little girl just trying to go to school and receiving all that vitriol and she was brave enough to to fight through that is an endlessly incredible story. We have not covered her on this podcast yet, but I, I know that we will at some point. Yeah. And she's unfortunately not that old of a woman. This was not that long ago. <laughs> no, she's still alive today, I believe. Yeah, she's very much alive. That's a great pick. That's a great pick, Colin. (laughs) Without further ado, I'm going to jump into my broad. I'm not sure. Have you ever heard of Helen Beeb? I don't believe I have, no. Or her unmarried name. Before she was married, her name was Helen Hulick. Is that familiar to you? No. I'm not surprised because this story is kind of obscure. And I've been, of course, reeling still from the Supreme Court rulings that have been going down the last week and a half. and Just one by one. I know. Like, fuck the climate. Let's just burn it all down. Okay. Anyway, audience, if you haven't listened to our episodes about the Supreme Court ruling on abortion rights, you can dial back and listen to those. I definitely would, would recommend that. But anyway, I've been, so I've been very, you know... I'm like back on my groove of wanting to cover a few more broads who resist or people who kind of like fight the system. So I was, you know, feeling kind of fighty like that, like court fighty, like who can I find? And here I found Helen Hulick and her story is really cool. And then there's two parts to it because it's her fighting story and then the rest of her life, which she also like was this amazing other woman that I had no idea about. So I'll go back to the beginning though. I get ahead of myself sometimes. So Helen Louise Hulick was born in 1908 in Easton, Northampton County, Pennsylvania. And And that's where she spends the majority of her life. She attended Wellesley College in 1927 to 1929. And then she gets her PhD in 1930 from Clark School for the Deaf in Northampton, Massachusetts. Is she deaf? She is not deaf. But her life's work centers around... We'll get to the details of it. Okay. But her work does center around teaching the deaf. So after she gets her PhD, she goes on to teach in several deaf schools, first in Oregon and then in California. All my research didn't have a lot more about her early life. So that's kind of all I have about her early life because it's when she goes to California to teach and she's a kindergartner teacher in California. This is when her name makes national news and becomes this kind of historic event in women's rights in the United States. So in the fall of 1938, Helen is 28 at this point, and two men break into her home. They burglarize her home. They are caught, and she is called to court to testify in a hearing to identify them uh, uh, on November 9th. So she goes into the courtroom. She's sworn in, and she takes the stand. And the judge, whose name is Arthur S. Guerin, Guerin? Guerin? Who knows? The judge reprimands her for... (gasps) Do you want to guess? Uh, oh, I think I kind of feel like it. 
being a woman alone, like not living with a man or something like that. Nope. Oh, done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's close. She is reprimanded for wearing slacks. Oh my! She's wearing gosh. pants in the courtroom. In the courtroom, and he says that Helen's pants take too much attention away from the legal issues at hand. And he reschedules the hearing oh to goodness. November fourteenth in order for her to return in a more quote acceptable outfit. <laughs> and Helen is rightfully pretty pissed. Sure. And the next day she publicly denounces the judge and his decision. And she says, quote, you tell the judge, I will stand on my rights. If he orders me to change into a dress, I won't do it. I like slacks. They're comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> this is 38, 1938? Yes, this is 1938. Okay. So a week later, November 15th, Helen appears at the rescheduled hearing. And she arrives dressed in an orange shirt and green pants and she's about to be sworn in again but judge garen halts the proceedings and says i'm gonna say it in a judge voice oh please do quote the last time you were in this court dressed as you are now and reclining on your neck on the back of your chair (laughs) you drew more attention from spectators prisoners and court attaches than the legal business at hand you were requested to return in garb acceptable to courtroom procedure today you come back dressed in pants and openly defying the court and its duties to conduct judicial proceedings in an orderly manner it's time a decision was reached on this matter and the power the court has to maintain what it considers orderly conduct. The court hereby orders and directs you to return tomorrow in accepted dress. If you insist on wearing slacks again, you will be prevented from testifying because that would hinder the administration of justice. But be prepared to be punished according to the law for contempt of court. (laughs) So despite the fact that her attorney, William Katz, had like four volumes of citations about how she's allowed to wear whatever she chooses in court, the judge is like, whatever. And he issues that warning. So you come back, you're going to be punished. So this is just entirely the judge's own opinion about how he feels a lady should be dressed in court. There's no Correct. legal standing. No, There's no precedent. He was distracted. To me, this is like the equivalent of like girls having to change out of spaghetti straps in school yeah. now. It's like- Yeah, the boys won't be able to concentrate on their studies. Yeah, because a girl is wearing a tank top. Like, get out of here. Although this is like the much earlier version of it, obviously. So afterwards, after this reschedule and then this reprimand, Helen says to the reporters, quote, Listen, I've worn slacks since I was 15. I don't own a dress except a formal. If he wants me to appear in a formal gown, that's okay with me. I'll come back in slacks. And if he puts me in jail, I hope it will help to free women forever of anti-slackism. Nice. And the next day, Helen returns to court, and once again, she's wearing pants. I bet the anti-slackists hated that. I bet the (laughs) anti-slackists. It's my new favorite term. Um, Once again, she's wearing pants. Judge Guerin, true to his threat, holds Helen in contempt of court, and she is sentenced to five days in jail. Oh, my gosh. And the LA Times reported that during her booking, quote, after being divested of her favorite garment by a jail matron and attired in a prison denim dress, Miss Hulick was released on her own recognizance after her attorney, William Katz, obtained a writ of habeas corpus and declared he would carry the matter to the appellate court. 
end quote. So four days later, November 19th, the appellate court overturns Judge Guerin's contempt citation and Helen was free. She, she was declared free to wear slacks in court. So the next level up from whatever this asshole judge was, the appellate court, was like, <laughs> we don't get it. <laughs> it's like, not only we don't get it, but like there's no precedent for it is what it's all about, right? right? Like, what are the rules of law? Do the rules of law say she can't wear pants? And there were no rules of law that said that. But she spent her the four days in jail? She, I think she get, she got, she was sentenced to five days in jail. I think she got out like a day or two early. I thought she served the full five days because as soon as I think her lawyer filed the like habeas corpus, I think the the appellate court pulled her out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So the here, so the original hearing against the burglars <laughs> is rescheduled for January seventeenth, nineteen thirty nine, and this time Helen arrives at the courthouse in a formal evening dress. <laughs> With a hat and a veil and a fur stole and like the whole shit. <laughs> and it's like the biggest F you to the patriarchy that I have heard of in that time period. I love that. that like yeah. she fought and fought and fought to wear pants and then she wears her fur. <laughs> All right. I'll be a lady. I'll show up as a lady today. And so that is like the resi- the like resistor feminist part of Helen's story. So if you look up her name, that's Spanish. kind of like the primary part of what you see. But that is not all she did. She ends up being a freaking amazing person. So here's part two of Helen's story. In 1942, she moves to New York to study speech therapy at Columbia University. And she ends up studying with this Viennese speech therapist and psychologist named Emil Froschels. Froschels. Is that what the umlaut on the O is? Is it Froschels or Froschels? Yeah, go with Fro. Froschels. Anyway, Emil Froschels. And he was in the process of developing something called the unisensory method or the unisensory approach. And Helen would become a lifelong collaborator and co-developer of this method, which today is known as the auditory verbal approach. And this specifically refers to teaching deaf children and how to teach them. In particular, so Helen believed that deaf children that had residual hearing regardless of how little hearing they had, should develop spoken language with natural intonation. So that's like when you hear people signing and also speaking along with it. You hear those intonations. And that is part of this, mm. this system that she developed. In her 1953 book, so that's skipping ahead a little bit, but she describes kind of what the whole concept of it is. And she said, quote, lip reading should be avoided as much as possible at home and in therapy. Otherwise, the child would become dependent on lip reading and not use their hearing. So it's about continuing to use whatever hearing that you have. In 1944, she founds her own practice in Easton, which would later on be called the Helen Beebe Speech and Hearing Center. And she would go on to serve as its director for 40 years. But she starts it at the very beginning out of her own home with a single student. This student's name was Marty Cronell Jungloff, and she was deaf from birth. And Marty had one of the very first wearable hearing aids that came out around the 1940s. That was like the beginning of actual hearing aids. They called it the vacuum tube hearing aid. And the way that she worked with the kids, she would keep a diary for each kid that she worked with. And the child's parents would also make entries into the same diary. And so very quickly, Helen was able to like understand like what the parent and child both kind of needed in terms of communication and how to kind of develop this system. 
together. Putting it at the human level, not just like, oh, here's the prescribed method, go, 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 but saying like this particular student, this particular family needs this sort of work. That's very cool. Yeah. And then when they would come back with the diary, each, you know, they would come in for their their session and Helen could see what the child had been learning at home with their parents since their last session and could kind of track their progress and track their learning. Very hands-on. And then Helen would also invite other young teachers to come teach at the therapy center. On average, they would teach about 50 students, ranging from babies to teenagers. They're students whom all had some level of deafness. They had individual therapy twice a week. And this enabled them to attend mainstream school with their hearing peers. Hmm. So it was like opening a door for deaf children to kind of be more connected in with the hearing world, whereas before they were kind of like shut out of it. Like completely, like kids... Oh, just it's a that's a sad reality. Like before established sign languages yeah. and methods, like of, of kids really, yeah, just being in prison. Yeah, they and, did have sign language, but it's like they couldn't. It it was difficult for them to interact with their peers because their peers didn't speak. Their hearing peers don't speak sign yeah. language, right? Yeah. So even if their family did, and so what you know, what the the speaking that Helen was doing with them enabled them to still communicate with with hearing people, even if hearing people didn't sign. And and they said that Helen also used hearing aids to help accustom children to to speech through the ear before, hopefully, before they could become solely dependent on the sign language, lip reading, or visual signals. Hmm. And there was an interview with one of her former students named David Davis in 1983. They they interviewed this guy, and he said that he could only have graduated from Harvard University because he was able to study at BB Center as a young child Hmm. and that Helen had taught him how to distinguish tones and how to respond to them. And it was more of a mental process that included logic and rational thinking. And he learned the language one small step at a time. That's cool. In 1950, Helen was able to present her method and her philosophy at the Congress of the International Association of Logopedics and Phoniatrics. Phoniatrics? <laughs> the IALP is the, the acronym um, in Amsterdam. And she would go on to write like innumerable news articles and give lectures all over the world, spreading the knowledge and experiences that she had working with deaf children and, and this method. Hmm. In 1972, the Larry Jarrett Memorial Foundation was established by a small group of parents to promote Helen's method of unisensory training and make it available to all hearing impaired children. Helen donated her private practice to the foundation in 1978, and it later became known as the Helen Beebe Speech and Hearing Center, which is a not-for-profit organization. And in the early 1980s, they moved the practice to a new building, and parents were taught to use the method at home. And families would come from Europe and South America from all over to get this training because it was so Mm. specialized and so unique. That's cool. Helen was also very active in specialist groups and was an honorary member of the American Speech and Hearing Association. She was co-founder and first president of the Auditory Verbal International, AVI. That organization promoted the auditory verbal approach and it trains teachers all around the world, spreading the knowledge to all the teachers, right? Spreading teachers rather than enforcing families to get, tr- travel. That's, that's much better, like bringing it to the people. Exactly. She was also a director at the Alexander Graham Bell Association for the Deaf and the Foundation for Children's Hearing, Education, and Research. In 1985, Lafayette College awarded her an honorary doctorate in human sciences for her life's work, and she died of heart failure on March 18, 1989, at Easton Hospital in Pennsylvania. And I want to just close with this line because one of the articles I was reading closed with this. <laughs> Judge Guerin, meanwhile, died in 1962 and is remembered as a hurdle to gender equality. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Here's 
this woman who made it possible for deaf and partially deaf people to, she did this amazing work. And then there's that judge who just was an asshole. Yeah. Just didn't like a lady's uh, seeing the separation between her knees. Oh my goodness. Isn't that, isn't she amazing? Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Like she didn't show up in court. Like, so when she appears in court that first time, she's not trying to do anything. She's just wearing what she wears. Going to court to deal with uh, the fact that she was burgled. I know. And then she doesn't, she doesn't just comply. And I love that about her story because I think like, when I think of like day-to-day things that happen to women, and I'm sure you've heard these stories from Anna and from other women, you know, in your life or witnessed them yourself. But like, you know, when people are reprimanded for small things, it's easy to just say, okay, whatever, I'll just do that because I don't want to deal with, I don't want to deal with it. I just need to get on with my life. And, but to not put up with it and to stand up like three times, you know, she shows up in pants like three times. Right. Knowing that jail might happen. It's a small but so brave action. Yeah. And I think like if everybody did that more often, even in small ways, it might not make national news and it might not, you know, get you arrested. But for every time that that happens and for every time that you don't comply and you don't change based on somebody else's expectations, I think that the world grows and the people around you, whether or not you know it, like see it. Yeah. And respond to it. Yeah. And here's this woman who like paved the way for women to not have to wear dresses all the time. I guess in that time period, that was really strange. And they said that not many women wore pants. And now, of course, we all love pants because nobody likes, you know, thigh sweat. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, back then, it was like a it was like a really brave thing to do. Yeah, I have a, a little, uh, she's a, a six-year-old daughter, just thinking about those those little moments that kind of pave the way for her to be a like a fully fledged functioning member of society. Like you know, we're not trying to put any of those kind of constraints on her, or or you know, say like, "Ah, oh, you're a girl, you can't do this, you can't do that, you should be doing this, you should be doing that." She just gets to be a little human person, and yeah, uh, that's awesome. And she can play with her. dinosaurs, and she can wear pants, and she can oh wear gosh. whatever color clothes she wants, and yeah, skinny dip in the pool. Whoa, <laughs> whatever she wants. <laughs> Whatever she wants. But uh yeah. So that's Helen Hulick. Helen Hulick or Helen Hulick Beeb. Thank you, Helen. Yeah, thank you, Helen. Paving the way for pants. Yeah. I like I like this that's what's good about this podcast. Is like you like you wouldn't really think about those those minor moments of rebellion, of good rebellion that that that's just yeah, I that's awesome. Yeah. And and I mean that courthouse story, all that, that happened here in LA. Yeah, that's crazy. And so the LA Times like has these articles about it. Like they have like several different articles through the course of that story. Are there any pictures of her illicit pants? <laughs> there are. I have the pictures on the website, everybody. So check out the website, including the picture of her at the final hearing where she wore the, the formal that. gown. <laughs> and there's a picture of her in the the denim dress that she was forced to wear in the jail when she was booked in the jail. It's so it's like a giant sack. It's disgusting. Oh yeah, I can't imagine that was very. Uh, but you know uh, what? Sartorial. She's grinning. She has this like shit eating grin on her face. <laughs> oh good. I'm like I vibe with her so hard. I'm like she, you know, this is 38, and I'm like I I understand this woman like at a very deep level of yeah. like nope, fuck you. I'm wearing my pants, judge. <laughs> <laughs> there were some really so, cool uh, broads in that period. You know, that was like that was a, an extreme period of you know the 1920s sort of jazz age. People kind of getting yeah. out on their own, women kind of getting out on their own and, and being able to be a little bit more, you know, independent away from households and fathers and husbands and stuff like that. Uh, and then the 30s, booming even more. It's not until like the 40s uh, following the war when all these men came back from the war and the women had taken over the workforce that they got sort of scared and upset and started putting back all these, you know, 
more heavier on, yeah. on depressions and stuff like that. So, yeah. so a woman like Helen Hewlett doing again, like a simple little rebellion has a huge ripple effect and is, is really exciting. But th- there were women doing those little rebellions all the time and, and, and forcing this new narrative of independence, yeah. of equality, you know, not having to do yeah. anything extreme, not having to go to war, just to go back to Doctor Who from last week. Um, <laughs> Russell T. Davis, uh, who is one of the modern writers of Doctor Who, has this quote to the effect of human beings, we think in cave pictures, you know, we are still those people inherently. So mm. he, he was talking about, he, he's a gay guy and he wrote Queer as Folk and like he's, and um you know, all these other works where he, he just sort of pushes the narrative of gay normalcy. And and he says, like, it's not about pride parades and, and wearing thongs and, like, you know, running around in, in people's faces and, and forcing it on people. It's about right. walking down the street, holding hands with your boyfriend and just showing up mm-hmm. and showing that yeah. my love is normal, just like your love. And, and my reality is normal, just like your reality. So, yeah, I just was going yeah. to court. Wearing pants. Yeah. I did, I, and she's a freaking kindergartner. She's a kindergarten yeah, teacher. She teaches deaf kids, right? <laughs> like she's just doing this like really hard kind of thankless work, but that she loves. That's her life passion. And I mean, you're talking about the 1920s and 30s. Like that's where the word broad was kind of forged as this dirty word. Because yeah. the women that were, were breaking the norms and wearing the flapper dresses and stuff, like they were cut like majority of society kind of like looked down on them as like loose women and like right. immoral women. But, you know, here's the other side of the coin where Helen, you know, Helen's the opposite. She's a, a kindergarten teacher. So, so, you know, people can't say, oh, this woman is just a prostitute. She's not a prostitute. She's a kindergartner teacher and she shows up. <laughs> not that it matters because there's nothing wrong with prostitution. And Certainly not. Like that's not something we are anti at all on this podcast. But you know, many throughout history, people will use as a, things a like a term, like to, to to throw at people as though that is yeah, yeah. They would say, oh, well, it. it doesn't matter. It doesn't count for them because they are not as worthy of respect or not as worthy of you know. It's not an injustice to them because they broke the law. They were drinking alcohol during the prohibition, or you know, yeah. <laughs> so both resistors are powerful in their own right, and that's why you know one thing I harp on especially lately on this podcast is like when we resist and when we stand up, you can do that in any form. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be something crazy and, and attention getting, it can just be showing up in pants. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you, Colin, for being here for Helen. Thank you. That was great. I I have a dinner plans this evening and I'm going to be sharing that story. (laughs) Oh, I love to hear that. I love to hear when people share stories from broads. You should know that's the, that's uh, what we're all about is spreading the word about these amazing women. Damn straight. To learn more about Helen Hulig Beeb, see pictures of her and some of the great quotes from this episode, head on over to abroadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about Colin Borden. His bio, photos, links to all his cool stuff, and his social is there. Oh, and speaking of social, are you following Broads You Should Know yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know, and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, please help spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode with your friends and family, or better yet, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps new listeners to find us. 
Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. And finally, if you really enjoyed listening to Helen Hulikbeeb's story, then you might enjoy a few other episodes of Broads who also made a big impact in the courts, including Mary Tape, Susan Harjo, Shannon Faulkner, and Judge Constance Baker Motley. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>